0: From all of the patients who have not thanked you, from all of the administrators who don't see the value, thank you from the rest of us. Keep up the good work. And keep working towards systems and boundaries that help you to find a place where work stays at work and you still feel great about the care that you're providing to your patients. Welcome to The PA Is In, the show created by PAs for PAs, where codependency with your supervising physician is a thing of the past, optimal team practice is the future, and physician associate has taken the place of physician assistant as the professional title of choice. I'm Tracy Bingaman, and I'm obsessed with redefining what success as a PA looks like and what it feels like. Here you'll find the mindset shifts, systems and processes I use to escape healthcare burnout and integrate my work into my life. Work-life balance is a myth and an integrated life where you thrive professionally, not a balancing act, is the goal here. My mission is to help you to grow into a unicorn PA who loves their job, has abundant energy, time to spare and work optional financial freedom. The PA is in. If you only take one sheet of paper to your next negotiation, let it be the PA Pay One Sheet. It's a tool designed to walk you through setting up the ideal outcomes, assessing the situation you are negotiating in, and it even includes a reminder of which negotiation skills you can use. Stop what you are doing. Download the One Sheet, print it out, fill it out, and literally bring it to the table with you when you are negotiating next. It's designed specifically to work in healthcare settings wherever you are. You can use the PA One Sheet to get the best deal, the biggest raise, and to help your confidence walking into your next negotiation. Head to www.tracybingaman.com one, that's O-N-E, to download your free copy of the PA Pay One Sheet and start prepping for your next negotiation today. It's linked in the show notes, but in case you missed it, it's at www.tracybingaman.com O-N-E. Hello, and welcome back to another episode of The PA Is In. We are going to try something new today. I'm always looking for new ways to connect with and serve you guys. And I realized that I spent a lot of time inside my inbox. And by my inbox, I don't mean my work in basket. I mean my LinkedIn inbox, my Facebook messages, my Instagram DMs, my email, which is at themoneypa.gmail.com. You can find me on all of those platforms. I am at Mrs. Tracy Bingaman and on LinkedIn, just search Tracy Bingaman. I am in all of those places and I am serving you. If you have questions about negotiations, about burnout, about boundaries, about work-life balance, anything that you have heard me talk about here or just general PA life. And you're sort of saying, Hey, I'm in this specific situation. What would you do? What would you recommend? How can I get out? How can I get in? all of those different questions. So today's episode is going to be a QA. and I'm going to answer uh, mailbag epi- um, questions. So questions that you have sent me recently, questions that you have replied in a question box on social media that I put up. And I'm just going to talk through these answers because what I have found is if one person has a question, it is and not just you. So any of these questions can be applied to different situations and you can find the ones that speak to you um, and sort of go through and say, hey, what can I glean from this episode? What can I be reminded of? What is a good way to feel connected and in community? So I hope that these questions resonate with you. I would love it if after you're done listening to this episode, you leave us a review. If you loved it, you send us a message and say, hey, more of this or no, we despise that. Never again do we want you to do a a Q and a mailbag episode. Either way, that feedback is vital for me to know what you need. If you have other questions or want me to cover other topics, reach out on any of those platforms and send me your questions so I can make sure that I'm serving you during the season and space that you are in with this show. Without further ado, we're going to dive into some of these questions and I will try to give you a specific answer to the things that you have asked me. So first up, I got a question that said, hey, I'm a new graduate. I signed a contract for two years and now I want to get out of it what do I do? Disclaimer, I am a PA. I am not a lawyer, and I'm certainly not a lawyer in the state that you are in, and that does matter. So a lot of times when we get these offers, the offer letter, the contract is for a two-year agreement with automatic renewal. That is a date that you should have on your calendar, right? It's November 17th. I think that was actually one of mine. I think that was actually one of mine when I started my position with urology. I'd have to go back and check, but I think, I don't think that was the day I signed the contract, but that was my start date. So the day that you sign the contract, what is that date? It should be on your calendar. There should be an alert for several weeks to months before it. If you think that there's something that you want to negotiate and there should be. Every time that contract automatically renews before that automatic renewal date, that is an opportunity for you to ask for more See previous episodes all about negotiation. I'm not going to dive deep into that today. But this question is I signed a contract for two years and now I want to get out of it. The best money that you can invest, the best time that you can invest in this situation is you specifically reading your contract. Does the contract say what the penalty is for leaving early? Do you have to pay back a signing bonus? Are you ineligible for a productivity bonus? What does it cost you to get out? Early? And is that something that you can stomach or afford? Right? So, if they gave you a $30,000 signing bonus and you've been there six months, and if you leave before the two years, you have to pay that $30,000 back, you need to know that. And you also need to know how soon you need to do it. And is that money something that's available to you? Because you want to leave and step out into freedom, not into debt or some handcuffs to this previous position really good investment to seek a good healthcare employment lawyer in your area. Ideally, someone you could sit down with in person and say, hey, I'm in this situation, I need to review this. It's going to cost you money to see them and for them to review the contract. It's money well spent, right? So if you're in a situation where it's toxic, where you need to get out, where you had a new job offer, where you're moving to another state, whatever it is, that money is well worth it because it's potentially going to save you money. It's gonna have you know so that you have the details of what it's going to cost you to get out of that contract. So if it's I'm no longer eligibility for a productivity eligible for a productivity bonus this year, great, right? So then you know what it's going to cost you to get out. That contract is legally binding. Everything about it is always enforceable, which is why I recommend seeing an employment attorney. So sometimes your employer didn't have an attorney write it up and they got a boilerplate contract off the internet and they don't know your state's laws. So sometimes there's some things in your contract that are not actually legal or enforceable where you work or where you live. That's why you need a lawyer. You need someone whose bread and butter, is going over these employment contracts, who's understanding what it is says you agreed to and how to get out of it before those terms. So sometimes it will say, you know, within 90 days, you need to give 90 days notice. A lot of times it has that in it. And so even though you have a two year agreement, you can give 90 days notice before those two years are out. See an employment attorney. It's super, super important. It will help to protect you. It will help you to know how to give notice, when to give notice, and how you can get out in a way that is legal and isn't gonna dig a hole that you have to then spend years getting out of. Next question. Someone wrote in, how do I find work-life balance as a primary care provider? I feel like every one of these questions is going to come with a disclaimer because so far we're two of two. Disclaimer, I have never worked in primary care. I'm gonna tell you why, Um, just because it seems reasonable to do. I thought I wanted to do primary care when I was in school. I shadowed two PAs when I was deciding to be a PA. One was in the ER and one was in primary care. And I loved the relationship that my primary care PA had with their patients. This was actually my practice that I saw as a child once I had graduated from a pediatrician and before I left for college. It was a practice called Four Seasons um, Primary Care. That's not important to you (laughs) to know, but that's one detail about me that you now have you can't unhear. And so I actually, one of the PAs there was a friend of a friend and my parents knew them. And so they said, Hey, can my daughter come in and shadow you? I went in a couple of days. Um, I actually remember thinking as a 16 year old, wow, this is a lot of documentation. I remember this PA saying, Hey, one of my physicians that works here has young children And she does her charting as she goes so she can get home to them. I want to spend more time with my patients and I'm okay with staying an hour or two at the end of the day to do my charting. So I do the majority of my charting at the end of the day. I put the follow-up in sooner so that the nurses, you know, front desk can schedule them. And that has never left me that there is this burden of documentation and this burden of charting not what we're talking about here, but I do think it plays into the primary care environment. So I didn't love the medicine of primary care. I loved the immediate results of surgery. So that's the career that my, that's the route that my career took. Primary care, um, is a thankless job where you do so many things where you have to know so many things where you have so many patients and you are the quarterback of that patient's medical care where you are the gateway for them to get to specialists where you are the person following up to make sure that they went where you're making sure that they get their screenings where you are generally managing their life and that you have the highest touch of any provider You have tons of labs and studies that you are following up on, even though you maybe ordered them as they were going to a specialist. There's this huge administrative burden, and also you're not paid enough, which I know describes the frustration of so many primary care providers who feel like they're doing so much and not getting paid for their expertise. I think as a society and as a healthcare system, we have lost sight of the fact that it doesn't have to be specialized specialty care in order to be important and valuable. And that is a problem we will not solve with the answer to this question. But work-life balance for primary care providers, you have a lot of things you're dealing with. Your in-basket is probably overflowing. You have tons of patients that you're seeing. You have acute visits that are getting put on your schedule. What you need are systems and boundaries. So systems that are efficient, uh, an efficient way of seeing patients, an efficient way of charting, an efficient way of getting through your in-basket and finding a way that you can get in a flow state and do that in a way that works for you. I know that that's sort of idealistic, but you need systems to be able to navigate the amount of work that you are doing because it's a lot. And then you need boundaries right? You need to say no to same day appointments when you are full. You need to say no to charting at home. You need to make sure that your templates are set up so that you can chart quickly, but that your schedule templates are set up so that you have enough time to chart as you go, or that you have blocked admin time to chart so that you're not charting at home. I have no data to prove this, but I would venture to guess that primary care providers take home more charting than anyone else. I think that you take your laptop home at night and you chart for hours. Unless you're paid hourly and being compensated for that time, that time breeds resentment, right? Because you get home and you do the things that you want, but you still have this nagging thing and you have to open your computer, turn your brain back on and chart later on once those visits are complete. Boundaries help protect you from that and that they build a structure that keeps work at work. Unless you're on call, and then we know that's something different. But this is an uphill battle for everyone, but I think particularly for primary care providers because there's so much for you to do. And those patients want you to address all the things when they're there for sinus pressure because they know that you are the person who also manages their blood pressure and their hypercholesterolemia. So, Boundaries within the walls of that visit, and saying, "Hey, I see that you're concerned about this. Unfortunately, today, with your acute visit, we can only deal with this. Or if you're at a visit that's longer and there it's a physical, but then they have all of these complaints that you say we can address your top one, two, or three concerns, and the rest you're going to have to schedule a follow up, which I know is hard to do. And that patient is in your room and you want to capitalize on that. But in order for you to maintain sanity and work-life boundaries and work-life balance, you need those boundaries. However you can do to build your day so that you can get through the unexpected bumps in the road, the expected and demand charting, the following up on results, you need more admin time and less patients a day. Um, How can you fit that? into your specific work situation. Finding that out and sort of leading the way, even though your practice has never done it before, and saying like, I need blocks for admin time. I need longer visits in order for me to take good care of these patients and to really hold the line on that and help build a practice where your patients are getting the best of you is the best case scenario here. It's hard. I've never done primary care. I am terrified. I would rather... Clamp an aorta that was dissecting than see primary care patients. That's true. That's a thousand percent true. Uh, and part of that is because I feel just so much more comfortable in the operating room. But I think primary care is just a challenge. And all of you guys are heroes. And I love you, people who are doing primary peds, primary care, these outpatient medical based specialties where you are dealing with a lot of things and you are the point person. I am very overwhelmed by the idea of it. So, from all of the patients who have not thanked you, from all of the administrators who don't see the value, thank you from the rest of us. Keep up the good work and keep working towards systems and boundaries that help you to find a place where work stays at work and you still feel great about the care that you're providing to your patients. I feel like these are very long winded answers, and I'm not sure how many questions we're going to get through at the rate that we are going. <laughs> One of my very favorite things about being a podcaster is crossing paths with other incredible podcasters. If you love this show, especially when I share about my experience with healthcare burnout and recovery, you're going to want to check out the podcast, Burnout, What I've Learned So Far, hosted by my friend, Meg Letty. Meg is a former CT surgery PA turned advocate for healthcare provider wellness. Turn in to hear how she recovered from burnout and integrated well-being into her life to create a life of dreams, not nightmares. Add burnout, what I have learned so far with Meg Letty, to your podcast queue to start your journey to wellness and healing today. Okay, I get this question a lot. It's about how to break into dermatology or aesthetics or plastic surgery. So in case you don't know, I have a surgical background, general surgery, um, robotic urology, but now I work outpatient aesthetics at a plastic surgery practice. We have a dermatology practice as a part of our office. And a lot of people are wondering, how do I get into these specialties? It seems like there's a high bar to entry and a lot of interest from people and i think the most frustrating thing for people when they're searching for derm positions it says three years experience but it says that everywhere and everyone's like how do i get three years of experience in dermatology if i don't have anyone won't hire me in dermatology if you are early on in your career if you can get experience in dermatology as a medical assistant or in an office doing front desk if you can somehow early on in your career get patient care hours get those healthcare hours in a similar setting, that's amazing. Only works if it works, right? If only works if you know early, it only works if you can get someone to hire you inside of that situation. I hear this a lot about aesthetics. How do I get into aesthetics? So I got into aesthetics by way of surgery. So there are kind of two main routes to get into aesthetics by way of surgery, from plastic surgery and from me being adjacent to surgeons who had a practice that really wanted to build an aesthetics injectables program or from dermatology. So in dermatology, there is medical dermatology where we're doing rashes and acne and biopsies and skin cancer and amazing life-saving, important, important things where we bill insurance. And then there's cosmetic dermatology where we're doing things like skincare and injectables and lasers and peels and that kind of thing. Those two worlds often coexist inside of dermatology offices. So getting hired in a derm position can be a route to aesthetics. Getting hired in a plastic surgery position can be a route to aesthetics. It is hard to get hired into aesthetics without aesthetics experience. Can you get a part-time job? Can you do nights or weekends? Can you befriend someone in the aesthetics industry and shadow a bunch so that you have a good idea that number one, this is really something that you want to do. And number two, that you have that connection and someone who's willing to call their friend or write a letter. Aesthetics, plastic surgery, and dermatology are a small world and that the people inside that world know each other. So we live in an area that has our plastic surgery office, a couple other plastic surgeons that are doing some aesthetics couple of med spas that are doing some aesthetics. And I would be willing to bet that my surgeons have the phone numbers of the primary providers or the office managers of those other places. It's a small world. So if you can make an impression on someone in that world, even if it's not the someone that you end up working for, they could potentially give you a referral or a reference to someone else. Um, I think really getting into the network in your local area. A lot of people are tempted to take online courses and do things like that, which I don't think is bad. I think that knowledge can be super helpful and can be impressive if someone's reviewing your resume and they see that you've gone above and beyond and gone to dermatologic or aesthetic CME. Great. More powerful is a personal connection with someone who works there. So we field questions all the time, calls about people who say, hey, I'm thinking about going into aesthetics. Can I come in and shadow? And we have, as a private office, the capacity for people to come in and shadow. If you are local to me, send me a message. You are welcome to come in and shadow on a day that I am in the office. Getting in, making an impression on those people can make a difference. I think if you really want to do aesthetics, getting a position in plastic surgery at a place where they also have a cosmetic component. So a plastic surgery office, again, like I said about dermatology, there's reconstruction and paniculectomy and things that we do in plastic surgery that are medical. and by medical I mean insurance based, upper blepharoplasties, for example. and then there's cosmetics. So breast augmentation, tummy tuck, things that are elective and cosmetic and typically that patients pay cash for sort of those two different worlds in plastic surgery. So if you're looking to enter the aesthetics route through the plastic surgery doorway, know if your office has plastic surgery cosmetic stuff that they're doing, are they doing aesthetic injectables, sort of know that about your practice. Because if you get into plastic surgery and you get in through a a position or a practice that does medical only, you might have a harder time getting into the aesthetics but still you're closer than being at a general surgery practice. So I think thinking about getting into aesthetics as a multi-step process, leveraging your network and seeing in your area who's doing what and what kind of office you wanna be working at and trying to get in to that group of people. The second thing is sort of a strange approach But if you can figure out who the aesthetics reps are in your area, who the Allergan reps, who the Galderma reps are, who the people that are hawking products to these plastic surgery offices are, if you can somehow get into network with them, you can, they are in our offices regularly. So when we were looking to hire another injector for our practice, we had a training and so our rep was there and we had said to them, Hey, we have these couple of candidates or any of these people, people that you know. And the person that we ended up hiring was someone that they spoke very highly of. They said, this person is a workhorse. This person has a great reputation. This person is great in a training. They're great with patients. And we said, great. Like that was a direct reference from one of the reps. So getting into that network, they will know who's hiring. They will know who's good to work for. They will know who's reasonable and responsive. So if you can find those people, that's another way potentially into aesthetics. All right. We're going to do one more. So this episode doesn't get super long. Uh, but if you like this content, again, if you like this format of the podcast, let me know. Send me your questions. We can do another mailbag episode in a couple of months if this works. So so this is a question. I'm going to omit some of the details for um, maintaining anonymity. I was very nervous about saying anonymity and I think I pronounced it correctly. So to go buy a lottery ticket once we're done recording. So the person says I've received official I haven't received the contract but I've received an offer for position A that's making a hundred thousand which feels generous considering the area and the team sought me out and and asked me to apply I think this person's a new grad and then i've been offered 110 so job offer a 100,000 i've been offered 110 from a smaller hospital system my question is this do i have grounds to negotiate i don't want to be too demanding and risk losing the offer so option offer a was 100k option b was 110 do i have grounds to negotiate my answer to that question when it comes into my inbox is almost always yes and I say yes because negotiate is not a bank robbery, it's not demands, it's not making you seem ridiculous or unreasonable. A negotiation is you simply asking people to come up in their offer to give you more. So I replied to this question like absolutely yes. Um, you do have grounds to negotiate. The question is how? So. Also, which of these jobs would you rather do? Is the first question that I always have people answer when they're like option A or option B. Which of these jobs would you rather do? Which of these places can you see yourself working? So which place has better vibes? Which place is more on par with your value system? Those things are super important. And then, you know, say you're like, I really want to work at the place that's gonna pay me a hundred thousand, but I have this one ten offer. It's it's reasonable to go back to them and say, hey, I really want to be a part of this team because I see us working really well together. I did get another offer as 4 one ten. Can you come up at all in your offer? Most places will, three to 5000 if they've got it in their budget. And if they don't, have a plan B, right? So if they say, I'm so sorry, 100 is the most we can play a new grad in this specialty because of blah, 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 blah. I would ask for more time off. I would ask for a better schedule. I would ask for a flex half an admin day from home. Have things that you want to ask that don't affect their budget directly. So having an admin day from home does affect their budget because you don't generate as much revenue during those four hours or during those eight hours, but it's not so direct, right? So if they pay you $10,000 more a year, that's $10,000 off their bottom line. If they give you more flexibility or a telehealth day or time for commuting or admin time those things are less directly linked to the budget so it's fine to pit two offers against each other there's a way to do it that is respectful and reasonable where people aren't going to be like who's this person coming in asking for more money they're expecting that so don't let don't let this question do i have the grounds to negotiate hold you back instead ask yourself how can i approach this negotiation respectfully and effectively Right, how can I ask them to invest more in me? Right, maybe you say, "Hey, I'm a new grad and for the first 2 years I'd like to have more money to spend on CME because I'm really going to be pouring into learning the specialty. Instead of 2500, could I have 5000 a year for CME for the first 2 years?" Think creatively about ways that they can compensate you that are different than straight salary. Ask for a sign-on bonus to match that $10,000 for the first year. Ask about income growth. Ask if there's a way for you to write in to be making that one ten in a year or two. So those things are going to make it more um, attractive for you to take that position. And also, it's going to be a way for them to get you to take the position and pay you more later which is sort of what they want you to do. Get in and get making money. But also you're saying like, hey, how can I be compensated well as a part of that? It's always reasonable to ask for more even if you don't have a second offer. That is it. That is all of the questions that we have time for today. Feels very talk show hosty. Thank you for tuning in to a new different a little bit more free form question and answer episode of The PA is in. Let me know what you think. Send me your questions. We can do another one in the future. That is all for today. This PA is out. Congratulations. You've just joined an awesome club. By listening to a full episode of The PA is in, you are officially on the Unicorn PA team. Welcome aboard. What most team members do is they subscribe to the podcast because that allows them to automatically get the latest episode of the show. The life of your dreams exists on the other side of taking action. Keep making small shifts and keep getting better. Your life will improve, your career will soar, and you will have the confidence you need to create your own success. I will see you in the next episode. This PA is out.